Hello and welcome to another episode of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons. I'm Izzy, and this is Peter. Hello. And we're finally wrapping up the Pana cycle with the obvious theme of talking about this story through finales. We're really excited to get into this one. A lot happens in this chapter. And also mini epilogue, but that's considered part of the chapter. But to preface all of this conversation we're going to have, we're going to talk about one of my favorite shows, very near and dear to my heart. It's super short and watchable for anybody who wants to watch it. But it's called Over the Garden Wall and follows the story of these two brothers, Wirt and Greg, that are wandering in the forest in the unknown. That's what the forest is called, um, or the world is called and trying to find their way home, and they're like, how did we get here? What's going on? Basically, Over the Garden Wall really does a great job of kind of giving viewers a finale. It's a short, very self-contained show with just 10 episodes, so there's a lot packed into each episode, with the finale showing the two brothers, Greg and Wirt, facing off against the Beast and, you know, evading these tricks and traps and lies that the Beast tries to, you know, foil them with. And they do eventually make it back home, but, you know, things still remain a little bit ambiguous because co going from the unknown where they had spent the almost the entirety of the show back to the real world, which for them is like some kind of 1970s or 1980s time period in some random non-specific New England town, but the finale really does a great wrapping up job, as well as leaving questions open that I think your story also does very well, Peter. But I would definitely want to be thinking about how finales in general don't answer questions in a way that is really skillful, because Over the Garden Wall, I think, leaves viewers with just as many questions as answers, if not more questions. And... Also, really, I love the fairy tale element in Over the Garden Wall with the trials that they face in the final episode and throughout the show, very much based on this in-world logic of fairy tale, but also sort of surreal, nonsensical logic that the characters themselves question. But at the height of the show and the climax, that questioning of the logic in-world really is the crux to beating the bad guy and saving themselves, but still not completely beating the bad guy, but just sort of... It's sort of an incomplete conclusion where they're able to save themselves, but they're still leaving the villain to be faced down by another person who has really been the one being antagonized by the beast. Because it's more like, this is your battle, you have been the one facing him. So they leave it to the woodsman, who has really been fighting the beast for the whole show. Oh, that guy in the first episode. Okay. Yeah. Peter's only seen the first episode. It was, it was a little too scary for me, I think. I was creeped out by it. <laughs> um, the first episode especially is trying to creep you out. but Yeah. But I love the, the little Halloween gnomes. show. They're good. There are no gnomes. They are gnomes to me. But 
No, they're they're not gnomes. Um, but yeah, no, I think that was really super interesting and definitely like looking at at my story. Just like I think that's what we'll we'll try to figure out and like talk through just the ways in which it wrapped certain things up, certain storylines specifically about like Pana and their character development and relationship to Vare, how the more plot type of things with the the super weapons and stuff have been wrapped up or left open and like what might go on in future stories potentially what questions have been left open i guess my mind is going to the epilogue because thinking of unanswered questions mm -hmm. i'm very curious about how the epilogue sets up the possibility of a next story which is you know what books often end up end with the possibilities that still exist still leaving you with a sense of, you know, emotional satisfaction. I really hate it when a book ends and there's no, you know, emotionally satisfying ending, even if, you know, the big bad guy antagonist of whatever kind is still out there. I hate it when they leave it emotionally unresolved more than when they leave it that, you know, the big conflict isn't resolved because that's what a series is, like, fighting the baddie over several books, but leaving it with a big emotional question mark is what I hate. But I think your epilogue sort of handles that really well, and Pana does receive a little bit of closure. Uh, not that they're, you know, fully through their healing process and processing everything that has happened to them, but the character, the very mysterious character, Helen, tells Pana in a dream that she's proud of them, which I thought was very sweet and also something Pana really needed to hear. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot that this was here. <laughs> I'm rereading it like right now. Yeah, I think your your idea of um emotional versus like plot closure is really interesting. And I you know, I absolutely wanted to leave both open in a way i mean there's definitely like closure here if this was its own story i think hopefully like the reader got you know whatever they needed from it and like pana certainly has some aspect of closure with what they're feeling right now with regards to their own journey their relationship to vare and like the village and stuff so not that it can't change over time even more like it absolutely can but I think there is this this sense of finality, hopefully, or at least the finality in in time. Like this is one period of Pana's life. Yeah, I'm thinking of it also from comparing it to other books or other shows as well. The very, you know, telling tendency to leave things open ended in such a way that builds up for sequels or leaves the leaves it open to have a follow-up book or follow-up TV show or movie. And there's certainly ways to do that that don't feel unsatisfying for the viewer or the reader. But I think sometimes people overplay their hand a little bit and it's very obvious that they're entirely structuring the story to make it ready for sequels. And I think that kind of... Sometimes it, it is very well done, but I think... Oftentimes it leaves an inherent weakness in the story because you're just writing holes into your own story for the purpose of filling them in later, which I don't really 
I don't appreciate that. <laughs> I think your story leaves, you know, the opposite of a hole, a bubble. It's a hole in the air. Uh, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> your story it introduces possibilities, but it doesn't leave, you know, plot holes. Okay, I think that makes sense. The bubble metaphor may have been a bit much. What did you make of, like, this location? So, like, for the epilogue, did it seem like the location was important? Or, like, there is a story element that could happen going forward? I have no idea. I mean, the location in the epilogue, you see this giant mountain city that Helen is clearly living in. But I don't know when... Helen was clearly... It, according to Pana's time, Helen was alive hundreds of years before them and should be dead, logically speaking. So wherever this mountain city is, it's probably completely ruined and in disrepair. So there's the obvious implication that Pana's supposed to find that place and go there along the way, destroying the weapons that still exist. But... If there, you didn't end up writing a follow-up story, I wouldn't feel like my questions have never been answered what's going on. Because this, I thought the city kind of also felt a little bit kind of Camelotti or Avalon-esque, where you don't really need to go there. It's just it's the idea of the perfect city or the perfect place as well. So if Pana was to never find it, it has that kind of mythical quality to it. Because also, I guess, because never appearing earlier in the story either. There's not too much tie back that at least I can see to, you know, this part of the plot needs to be tied up and they need to go to this city. And there is no, like, direct call to Pana. Come here, let's go. But, um, I think it is a satisfying enough ending that still raises questions, but I wouldn't be heartbroken if they weren't answered by the author. I could come up with my own. Awesome, because I don't know if I'm going to write a second book. <laughs> this, I mean, just insight into the, into the life of someone who, who wrote a book-length story, even if it's never published. So I can't say that I've written a book exactly. It is... It is difficult and time-consuming and just, like, so hard to sit down and write. So I don't know if I'm going to write the second story, but I just think another just insight that I, I'm really happy with. the So this story originally was supposed to be, like, completely different, and it was going to take place entirely in this mountain city. And then I oh. was like, I, I've written, like, multiple drafts of, like, the first five or so chapters of that story and it never like worked out and then I just started like I, I just like shifted course abruptly at some point and was like okay we're gonna do a prequel I think that's a little bit more interesting and I changed like the format too I went from like normal chapters to a more tv show type of style so we ended up not seeing this place in this story until right now but yeah, I just really love this location. Like the entire story, before I even had a story, I remember like coming up with this idea of this mountain city with a spiral staircase as like their main thoroughfare back in like, I think it was like ninth grade at Model UN. I'm just happy that it's in this final epilogue and it like played into this in some way.
and we'll see like maybe if we do a second story we'll see what happens and if Pana goes there but I'm glad that like you you didn't feel an overwhelming need to see that story I think that's that's good there is interest but it's not this story isn't less because of this epilogue no I think the story itself is very well self-contained which certainly a story that is setting up for sequels can also be self-contained and you can have a satisfying beginning, middle, and end while still leaving a sequel possibility open. But I think the way you have structured the story and the way the ending plays out, it would be satisfying either way because you know that their Pana has a journey that they can continue to go on destroying the weapons, but there's not really a sense of incompletion, I guess, emotionally or narratively, because you know things can continue to happen in the world that you've created, but there's not the feeling of, you know, I guess, immediate danger or... which I suppose often the cliffhanger ending to a book, for me, can really be annoying if I don't have the book, the second book immediately on hand, but cliffhanger endings not not the case here they're they're the or, worst <laughs> you know very ominous kind of endings where it's like things are okay for now but that's very much not the case here where i mean things aren't perfectly okay but they're not going out of their you're not going out of your way to say everything's everything's a question mark nothing is certain yeah we have some certainty I love just Pana's kind of conclusion at the end and the, you know, the person telling them that they're they're proud of them. So there is some like finality and closure. But I also wanted so let's let's talk about the story itself and not just the epilogue. <laughs> is there anything that particularly struck out to you? Cuz this I mean this story was very different in the sense that like we're in this more technological type of setting there's like a robot person thing that is like the the caretaker or the administrator of the facility and it goes into a whole lot of stuff like you get an actual location there in the Hudson Bay which is you know a real place in our world in Canada yeah I mean did that take you out of the story at all or did it seem like it made sense following I mean I know we've like we've presented in previous stories ideas of like the past and what happened but i think I'm, I'm just curious like how this story fits into all of that mm -hmm. i mean i was kind of imagining it as this apocalypse because they have clearly technology advanced beyond what we have they must have caused the apocalypse like 50 100 years a little bit after our current time period but society was still a lot more similar to what we know it now as versus Pana's time way in the future everything is different yeah we're making some allowances because I, I think it only works for the story if it's like our time like sort of almost now mm -hmm. but the technology as you said like doesn't quite fit in so it's like sort of sort of our world as we've said before mm -hmm. yeah no i mean i was thinking like you know socially 
general politically the vibes do seem very much like our current world just the technology doesn't quite fit with the whole robot i was also surprised the robot had as much autonomy as it did because the depiction of robots and how much you know sentience they have can really vary depending on how you want to have your robot be in your story but this one definitely was much more free thinking to a certain extent but I thought it was very interesting when you have a robot as a character character and not just you know furniture or servant type it, it vacuums the room it's very interesting to think of the line between their own free will however you want to depict it or describe it and their programming what they're supposed to do so the further along that the story went and the more intelligence that the robot showed the more i was questioning why in the world did it stay here because it stays in an abandoned facility for hundreds of years and yet it's very intelligent and has you know the ability to act without being given direct orders and tries to kill Pana and the entire world, basically, of its own volition. Yeah, I don't know. I definitely wasn't thinking of robot autonomy and whatnot when writing this. I was like, there just needs to be something. Because Pana, I mean, I think they even say at some point, like, they can't read the language that, like, everything is labeled with. It's like, they're going to have no idea how to figure out how to, like, destroy the weapon and, and stuff. So I needed, like, someone to be there. Mm -hmm. And then, like, you know, there's there's not going to be some old, like, human, like, administrator, like, a secretary, like, who survives and is like, hey, I've been living here for, like, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. Like, let me show you around. So then I was like, okay, a robot, I guess. I don't know about its autonomy, though. Like, that's an interesting thing to think about. Like, why why did it stay in there? I really don't know. I think I mentioned at one point that like either Bob or someone is like, oh, this thing seems a little off. Like it seems like it's broken. So I don't know if there's like a hint of maybe just this thing like isn't functioning as it should. Like, yes, it's extremely smart and intelligent, but there's still something just off about it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm also thinking intelligence doesn't necessarily equate to free will or decision-making, like, clear decision-making capability, where the decisions the robot is making, I'm just making inferences on what the programming is supposed to be for this robot, but the decisions it makes in the story are very much align with fulfilling what I imagine to be its programming, which is facilitating the end of the world through releasing this big weapon. And it's very good at fulfilling those instructions, just better than I would think to a level where I would almost think it was, you know, human, or it pretty much demonstrates human levels of intelligence, but I guess the choice-making ability and decision-making ability is really where the sentience would, like, like yes or no would really come to play where I guess I would say I mean I don't know if sentience is the right word but like autonomy it doesn't really have that but this is kind of aside the beside the point for finales <laughs> I do think it plays a really interesting role in the finale as you know a little bit more of 
information about the story and the world of how it was. But, you know, facilitating the plot and guiding the characters that couldn't possibly get through this whole facility and finding the weapon without their help. Yeah, it definitely facilitates just the ending in that way. Provides a little bit more context for what the world was like. I love, I was looking through, and I just love this one line where the robot's like, oh, the president should be arriving any day now, as if it was, you know, thinking back in the past. And then it's like, but he never showed up. He's probably busy stirring up, like, fear and hate and all that. We already knew that for the most part, but I just love that, you know, there's these little kind of additional flares of, like, information about what happened and why and what it was like for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think the robot does a great job of just adding some little tiny bits of context and getting us to the final point. Yeah, I, I do appreciate it. Yeah, also because the robot, you know, is kind of able to pull the curtain back a little bit more than just Pana having visions. So now, not just Pana, but the other characters can learn a little bit more about it too. But having, you know, confirmation from not just one sequence of visions, but having confirmation of everything that occurred. Yeah, like, this is the only real proof, I guess. I didn't think of that. Well, I mean, the visions are pretty, pretty proofable. But in, like, a solid, like, I, the, the visions were proof to Pana, and, like, everyone believed them. But this is, like, the first time, you know, other people are seeing this. And the robot yeah. itself is like, hey, here's what it was like, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think this this is, like, the point, like, beyond a final doubt like oh this this idea of like these weapons like israel which mm -hmm. i didn't think about before yeah i mean I, ha I did have a question at the point where the robot introduces itself and it's like this is the hudson bay infectious disease discovery research something oh. yeah oh, discovery <laughs> thing yeah and i was like what infectious diseases what's going on here is this a cover-up but then no you find out Spoiler, the weapon is a disease. It's a bioweapon. Yeah. It's a plague. <laughs> we already talked about this before recording, but this is definitely just... You can you can see the influence of COVID in this story, <laughs> where the final weapon is a, is a virus. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. Definitely not nearly as common as just going the missile route, which is exactly what I was expecting. Which is what I almost did. Again, like, going back to the idea of the mountain city and, like, the previous drafts of this story, there was totally just going to be, like, a missile in a mountain. So mm. this, I think, turned out a lot better. It was also just for the characters, too, because I think the type of character interactions would have been different depending on the weapon, too. Because there's a certain, like, slowness i think to finding out that the weapon is a virus and it's frozen in ice and they have to like walk through this facility and it feels like even though it you know it could destroy the entire human population like i'm not saying that it the weapon isn't scary i just think there's a certain amount of like it, it almost feels lesser in scale and like there is a potential of making sure things are okay and like this is something because the disease is like 
in these dragon hosts. Like, there is the possibility that Pana can figure it out and do something in this way that feels just a little bit less severe than, like, a nuclear missile. Even though at the end of the day, like, it is not less severe. In a sense. I don't know if any of that, like, made sense. Yeah. Um, just a little clarification for those who have not read the story. The dragon host is for the drag these three dragons that are frozen in ice that are infected with the deadly disease that when they're unfrozen will spread it throughout the world to all humans and kill everybody which is really scary and also how could you do this to dragons but definitely i also felt that it you know it's scary for sure to contemplate a disease <laughs> like that but not Everyone has experience of that now, unfortunately. But definitely thinking of the idea of like nuclear warfare is just, you know, the immediate threat and the knowledge that, you know, if you get a disease, maybe I'll survive it. Maybe, maybe I won't catch it. There's always that little bit of chance to it. Whereas nuclear missile, like, even if it doesn't, you're not in the immediate blast radius, there's radiation and you'll be messed up for life even if you survive the radiation poisoning the best you can hope for is to be in some super remote area where nobody will find you or the missile won't reach you which i think at least in, in pana's time maybe there's some hope but you're probably more screwed because there's no actual medical care which is also the same thing for the bioweapon because there's definitely no medical care for this kind of strange ancient disease. Although maybe there are some pockets of humans that the dragons would not find and would be safe. I mean, the, the one cure that we do see is like the stone. And I think this goes back to, I was just editing one of our previous episodes and we were talking about how the stone works. And the idea, I think we were talking about the stone being used primarily for like natural type of things and not that like infecting the dragons with this disease is natural but i think the idea of like a bioweapon as opposed to a nuclear weapon impacts like what the stone can do potentially or maybe I, I guess to me it felt more reasonable that the stone as this thing that can be used to protect but also cure people and like life like it would work um, a virus would, like, work as a weapon much better, especially, like, when it's hosted in, like, living creatures, too. So there's a lot of, like, I, I like how that kind of wrapped up and, like, fit together nicely. I like that the hosts, like, are dragons. And I think that ties into, like, the beginning of the story really well in that Pana's, like, left the village because of an incident with dragons in the first place. So now, like, this is their chance to kind of do better. Even though they didn't, like, mess up last time. I mean, it was, like, a mistake, and, you know, we know that. But this is a chance for them to kind of prove to themselves that, like, I can do it this time and, like, not mess up and make things okay. And Vare's there again. So it's kind of just, like, a mirror of that first incident, which I really liked. Yeah, I did think it was very interesting and important symbolism to have the dragons at the beginning. 
and also at the end. And to even have one of the dragons that was initially one of the... Well, I don't know if it's confirmed that it was one of the dragons that was attacking the villagers, but it was one of the dragons from up in the north that was part of that dragon clan that comes down and does attack Pana and Wave Skimmer on the boat, but then decides to help them out when they re realize, oh man, the disease is going to take over everything and has possessed, not possessed, infected these dragons. And so the red dragon that was attacking them is temporarily on their side. And I thought that was really um, a nice development in, you know, showing the more more about dragons beyond just, you know, what we do know from Wave Skimmer and Wave Skimmer's temperament, but also showing, you know, the social abilities of dragons and how, you know, they did murder those humans in the beginning, but it's not that all dragons are murderous. Yeah, I mean, you know, because Pana and Wave Skimmer saved the red dragon on the boat, and they they affectionately name it Reddy, because I can't, I couldn't think of a different name <laughs> i was like oh red scales it's ready <laughs> i think leaving in the um joke where pana wants to name it ready you could totally do i would suggest having another character suggest a better name if you can come up with one i don't know i did make sure to leave a line where Pana's like i'm not good at making names which is like just the bane of my existence as a writer i am horrible with names so <laughs> I, I wanted to leave that in there as like a meta kind of <laughs> comment and just as an excuse to like I really tried thinking of a good name for the dragon and I was like I, I can't do it. <laughs> I think I mean having the joke in there was fine but seeing the uh, later action sequences being like ready swoop down I'm like oh boy this is pulling <laughs> me out of it. I mean you know this isn't meant for, for adults this is a younger audience. I enjoyed it. I it, I have a childish sense of humor, so it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> but point point noted. The red dragon is not the biggest character, anyways. The name is not the most important. I do um, think it was very interesting that he did not seem to have the same aversion to humans like climbing on him. I mean, I guess it was you know pretty perilous circumstances, so not the same as just every day, but Reddy uh, and Wave Skimmer flying with Pana do save Vare and Kai who show up at the facility and are imperiled by their own selves by letting the dragons free. And then the dragons are like, we're going crazy because we were frozen in ice and infected with this horrible disease. And so Vare and Kai are standing over this giant sinkhole pit and the dragons have to catch, the good dragons have to catch them, Wave Skimmer and Reddy. And I thought it was interesting that Reddy was just like, yep, this human can touch me, you can ride on my back. I went from hating humans to saving them in just a matter of minutes, really. Well, I mean, but, but again, he was in like the seventh story, and this is story nine. And in the seventh story, he was like, oh, like, Pana, like, you saved me. Like, I'm gonna not kill you. So mm -hmm. I think he's had a little bit of time to think. And, like, obviously he came back. So I don't think it's necessarily been, like, a matter of minutes. But, I mean, definitely he's made a big shift in his perspective from, you know, story seven to... Well, from the beginning of story seven to now. 
So I just, yeah, I like seeing the character development of Reddy. <laughs> He's a good dragon. Yeah. No, I like, um, yeah, the character development from Story 7 on. I guess I was thinking more of it as a, a little bit more self-contained to... He hates Pana a little bit less. He's willing to coexist with Pana, but not necessarily confirmed for other humans until now. Yeah. I mean, and I think the, the problem, too, is, like, writing the thoughts and emotions of a dragon is a little bit difficult. So, like, definitely I'm trying to, like, make his actions kind of speak for that. So maybe that's why it seems, like, super abrupt. So I'll, I'll look into that for future drafts, too. Mm -hmm. But I do think, like, it made, it made sense. When he came back, I was like, oh, yes, the red dragon. I wasn't like, what? Why is he here? Such a good dragon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like you said before, Vare and Kai are there too. So we found out that they did follow Pana to the facility place. How? I don't know. Maybe that will be revealed, maybe not. If I figure out how. Um... <laughs> But yeah, that's, I mean, one of my favorite moments in this is the Vare. We've been, we've been calling it the Catra moment. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting because since we had been calling it the Catra moment, I had been picturing it as just Vare and Kai had like, was either not present or had dropped out of the search. But it was actually Kai and Vare, and Kai played a really crucial role, which I mean, of course, both of them had talked about it and we're on the same wavelength of like wanting to ruin things for everybody. But I thought it was really interesting that it was two people together instead of just one person being like, I'm going to make this bad decision by myself. Yeah, I mean, you know, Vare is definitely the one who's making like the emotional decision. So like the emotional like story aspects are all going on between like pa uh, Pana and Vare. And then mm -hmm. Kai is just the person there to like break the machine. And you also have, you know, Bob, Tally, MC, and Like, and Wave Skimmer. So it's not... I, I think the scenes with Catch and Adora are really just centered around them. There might be... I feel like Hordak is in the scene. Because I'm thinking of, like, when Catra, like, opens up the portal. Is that the, the moment? And then they go into, like, this weird alternate universe where, like, things are okay and, like, Adora never left. But then that starts to fall apart. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember exactly what Catra says, but there's a moment where, like, I, I think Adora is like, oh, don't do this and whatever. And Catra is just like, has this crazy, like, evil, happy, yet also just sad kind of look all at the same time. And, like, she pulls this lever and, like, just destroys everything, which is soon fixed by Adora. <laughs> but. I think the idea of, like, that, you know, Katra knows, I think she knows that, like, she can change sides at any point, and, like, you know, Adora would happily accept her, I think, even though she, you know, says that's not the case, and she fights back against that, I think, you know, on some level, she knows that she could easily just do the right thing and get her friend back. And yet she goes and pulls this lever and, like, opens these portals and, like, potentially destroys the world. So I really, like, wanted to try to emulate that in this. 
I like really had that in mind while I was writing this scene. No, I mean, definitely I got very much Catra vibes from the whole conversation with Vare and Pana. I do think maybe it wasn't necessarily that it would be easy to switch sides back to the, the good side or the healthy choices again. But I do think definitely it's clear to Vare and also to Catra. The healthy choice exists and they're actively knowingly not choosing the healthy option. It may not be the, the, I would say it's not like the easy option, but, or it's not a choice that they could easily make, but they, it's not that they're oblivious to it. They're consciously choosing to not choose it. Yeah, I definitely think my language of easy is, is wrong, but it's, they're, they're aware of it. Like you said, they know it's there. They could do it. A part of the reason that they don't is them like digging in even more and choosing this mm-hmm. other option. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think it's also interesting that Vare and Kai have been on this hunt, and Kai has consistently shown, you know, just how far she's willing to go, which is most of the time not quite as far as Vare, whose level of obsession is just kind of unmatched, but consistently steadfast. Like, great hench woman, hench person. Um for Vare. She's like the person if you're doing something and you need like a reminder of like why you're in something like she's she's the person for you. She really just like keeps reminding Vare of like oh you know Pana did this like we need to do this in response and Vare I think Vare like goes back and forth a little bit more and she's like struggling with her decisions and why she's here in the first place a little bit more than than Kai. Yeah I know Kai in the story, her father was killed by the dragon attack, so she definitely has a very strong connection to it where pers- on a personal level that Vari doesn't... Well, Vari does sort of, but nobody, sh- as far as I know, nobody in her family was killed. It was more that Pana themselves betrayed Vare. At least I'm interpreting it, it as a sort of betrayal in a way that she feels. I think but that's a good observation. I'm not sure. It because Kai is more on the revenge quest, whereas revenge quest for like her father being dead. Whereas Vare is coming at it from like how do I fix this betrayal or how do I make you apologize for this betrayal or make you feel the pain that you made me feel? Which is a very uh somewhat similar but still very different motive from revenge quest which kai is on yeah i think looking back on the story as a whole there's a lot of room for me to develop why vare's there and i mean we've been going into her headspace every so often but definitely not to the extent that we've been walking through this story with pana so i really don't know it's kind of vare is kind of complicated and i don't understand her a hundred percent yet and we'll see like in future drafts i think that might be interesting trying to develop why she's there a little bit more clearly so i don't know Mm -hmm. yeah i also am wondering about kai because clearly both of them are definitely obsessed at this point because anyone who wasn't obsessed would have dropped out there's been way too much 
going on and way too much that they've chosen to do that the average person would have been like, this is the line where I draw the line. So I am curious how Kai is kind of changing over the course of the journey as well to the point where she's like, I mean, we also don't know how much they're able to, you know, chat while the robot is demonstrating how to deploy the weapon to Pana and Ko. Vare and Kai are hiding somewhere and we don't know where exactly, other than they followed the people into the facility somehow very secretively and stealthily. But I'm not sure if they had a full conversation of like, hey Vare, let's destroy this thing and set the deadly disease free. I think that would be great. And Vare's like, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking too. So I'm very curious how that played out because when the action does roll out, it's clear they're on the same page and Kai just takes a hammer and smashes the control panel. But for the direct revenge quest, for someone who is in a place where they can think more logically, you know, setting, it, setting off a disease to destroy the entire world would not, you know, get you the revenge on the specific person that you need to get revenge on, which would be Pana. But from like a narrative standpoint, it makes a great finale and uh, climax. That was going to be one of my points. I have I have two points, I think. Definitely the proper answer would have been like, okay, just like quickly stab Pana and go. But mm -hmm. villains don't do that. So we needed, we needed something a little bit more flashier. But I think my other point... So I don't think that Vare and Kai necessarily know that they're risking the entire world. And we even see, like, I think they're on the the elevator thing going back up and they find, or maybe they're on the surface of the platform at that point. But basically, they see the dragons, like, flying out into the sky and they're like, oh, like, oh no, we just released them. So I think the goal was, like, just to have them kill, like, Pana and co. Which is kind of unfortunate. Like, I'm really just sad for, like, Bob and Tally and MC who like know Vare and like met her and like worked with her a little bit but I think you know Vare was really just like focused on Pana at that moment and wasn't thinking about them but definitely like yeah I don't think they wanted it to destroy the whole world because they're not you know they're not super villains they're just here to potentially get revenge and like bring this one person to justice who they think wronged their own village mm-hmm Okay, that does make sense. As a reader, I wasn't entirely sure how much information they had about that. Um, about mm -hmm. whether the disease would get the whole world or not. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I guess they were potentially listening in the whole time. And I'll, I'll look back at the scene where I had them, you know, worried when they see the dragons released from the facility. Because I wanted to make a point of them not wanting to destroy the whole world and, like, spreading that disease to everyone but I'll, I'll look back at that and see what I can what I can clarify yeah I did think it was you know at the emotional point where the Vare and Kai would have to be they've gone through this whole thing they've been cooped up on a boat with this person and then had a triggering event with the dragon attack um, both of them would definitely be through my own readers inferences at the emotional point where they'd be ready to 
you know, lay down a few extra lives, aka Pana's friends, and also Wave Skimmer's life in order to get to Pana. But they don't, yeah, they don't seem at the like super villain, like let's burn the world level quite yet. Not quite yet, indeed. <laughs> that that sounded like I was foreshadowing. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it makes for a great finale. I don't, also, I mean, considering their age, they're. I, I'm assuming they're teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> so they're not the the age where you're expected to make slightly more logical, less impulsive decisions. Yeah, I mean, not to say that, you know, grown-ups make the best no. logical decisions either, but I think definitely, I haven't specified the age, but I think they might be around teenagers, maybe, or if they're not, like, they're very, they're still very young. Certainly not that all adults have this, but they lack a certain perspective on, you know, even having never left their village before doing this whole journey, they lack a perspective on what the entire world even is, what is out there. People actually exist outside the village and live lives. Pana didn't know either. Yeah, they've definitely really seen a lot, a lot more than they ever thought they would see. You know, growing up and thinking that the world is like this desolate, this empty place. So... They, they, you know, they even discovered, like, dirt for the first time, because everything they knew was ice. So, let alone, like, seeing entire villages and, like, new people. Mm-hmm. It's really been a big adventure for, for all of them. Not my biggest question, but I do wonder how they might be changed by the journey, which is always sort of, you know, the end of the cycle of the big hero's journey thing. How is the person changed who comes back? Or... Are they changed so much that they're not able to come back? Which, for Pana, the going back was never really an option in the beginning because they were... Everyone in their village doesn't like them anymore. They hate them. But, you know, the closing of the circle, or can the circle be closed, is always a really interesting question. How has the journey left its mark? Yeah, that's not even one that I've been thinking about as I've been writing this or the, the draft of the next story. So I really don't know. Because definitely there's a lot of interesting characters. I'm thinking of Aragon who can't go back and he ends up like hiding in the desert. Not hiding. He starts like a new dragon school thing. But, but why in the desert? Because it's away from everyone else. He's like, it's all about like safety and keeping the dragons safe and training them. And making sure they can, like, grow in peace. And then they, like, mm. come back and, like, help when they're older. But the the point being, like, he doesn't go back. And then there's other things. So, like, Frodo doesn't go back to the Shire. Or he does, he but does. he doesn't stay. Yeah. But, like, Sam does stay. So definitely there's a lot of interesting things you can do with characters. And whether or not they they go back to their home as you were saying, I really don't know. That is not something I've considered with these characters, and I really don't know how they would respond to going back and how the people in the village would respond. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know. 
That's an interesting thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, for, like, MC, Tally, Bob, they're not super, like is probably pretty well-traveled, but they're not super well-traveled, but they're, like, well-traveled enough to have an idea of the world. So this, obviously, these events would have changed them and been way outside their own experience, too. But they'd be able to incorporate them a little bit more into the way their lives used to be. But I don't know how Vare and Kai and Pana... I mean, Pana is just kind of like, the life I led before was never an option to begin with. So this, in a way for them, it's a positive change in that they have a new direction that has been given to them. Whereas I see Kai and Vare as having, like, the direction they had has been put off course because of this journey. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, in a way, because you're right, like, Pana was struggling anyway in the village. Not to the extent that they had to leave. Like, they could have made a comfortable life for themselves, I think. But, like, definitely they can't go back at this point. Unless, like, something... I think, too, we need to, like, think about how the return, like, would happen. Like, what it would look like. So, Mm -hmm. I think, like, if they were just to go back right now things would not go well probably but that's not to say that they couldn't go back and like do something or maybe there's some event that takes place and they they are able to stay in a way that they wouldn't have been otherwise so i think Mm -hmm. something would need to happen to like the village or pana to come back i mean kai is like super less developed so like i don't know I think Vare and Kai would have an easier they would have an easier time returning. I don't think Vare would be able to stay though. I feel like she might have like some sort of guilt or like issues with living in the village again, potentially. I don't know. This is all speculation. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, definitely I do not need to know these answers for the story to be complete, but it is interesting to think about. Yeah. Is there anything else that you thought about or like anything to that tied into like the rest of the story that we need to like wrap up or think about? Not necessarily a huge overarching, but I thought it was nice that the finale wasn't just we got all the weapons you guys, it's done. We're 100% finished, but more of a like step 1 has or you know step whatever number has been completed along a series of many other steps because this is part of a l- much larger process way beyond Pana and Wave Skimmer and they're just the newest members of this secret order that destroys the weapons <laughs> and i did appreciate that it's you know a satisfying ending in that the weapon has been cured contained within the magic stone the disease is gone in the stone Nobody break that stone open. Oh, that stone, yeah. It's it's important. <laughs> but I did really appreciate that. It wasn't just, you know... I think there can be a tendency to kind of... Also, on the alternate end of leaving lots of plot holes for sequels, there's the other end where you try to very neatly tie things up together and kind of overestimate the abilities to tie everything together neatly into a bow. And I think... You know, not all of the weapons need to be destroyed, and it doesn't need to be 
completely resolved, resolved ending. It's okay to leave things as part of an ongoing process that's happening. And Pana going off knowing the world's a little bit more safer, but not completely safe, because there's still more weapons that need to be destroyed. But it's still a satisfying ending knowing that the world is safer now, if not perfectly safe. I thought it was good to not make it too neat of an ending. Yeah, it's definitely safer from the past and these past mistakes. Is it safer from the people that currently occupy the world? I don't know. That might be a major part of story too, potentially. If such a mm. thing were being planned. As we've been talking about throughout this and alluding to. <laughs> but yeah. So I think I think it's interesting the ways in which, you know, one problem can be solved that doesn't necessarily solve like every single problem. You know, there's always mm -hmm. multiple things that we face on any given day. So there's more things to come potentially if I write about them. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking like. It still has a satisfying ending, but it's not quite the same feeling of like, and then they rode off into the sunset or like mm. happily ever after. It's not as neat and tidy as those sorts of endings. Yeah. But it still provides a sense of resolution. Yeah. I'm just thinking for all my talk about liking happy endings, this isn't necessarily happy. <laughs> it's happy enough. I think everyone that... My definition of a happy ending is that everyone that I care about is doing well. Or the people who are, you know, the antagonists to the story have the opportunity to do better. So now we're moving on to talking about our favorite line or part. So we're not strictly sticking to line. I mean, we've been bending the rules since day one. But <laughs> first, we're going to see what Izzy like. I chose the line, um, when Wave Skimmer and the Red Dragon and Pana are saving Vare and Kai from the other dragons attacking. Pana is thinking to himself about how... You know, they're not certain Vare is going to be thankful, or, you know, they're not certain that things are going to continue to go well between them and Kai and Pana. Like, things are definitely broken irreparably at this point, but they're not going to just let them die. So, the line is just, helping people could be so complicated. Ooh, I almost picked that line. Oh, I'm glad you didn't. <laughs> it really can be so difficult. Mm-hmm. I definitely can relate to this. Not that I've been in, I guess, the position to, you know, be the big helper support necessarily all the time, but definitely can still relate in the ways that I have had a role. So my favorite part this is, so not a line, I'm just going to read you the, the catcher moment that I really liked. So, Pana basically apologizes and says, like, oh, you know, it was an accident, like, I'm sorry. So we start off with Vare talking. I know that it was an accident, Vare said, her voice scratchy and strained. 
Her whole body shivered. The whole time her eyes remained on her old friend. Hannah gasped. Their body trembled. You do? I do, Vari nodded, and she rubbed her thumb across Pana's cheek. Pana raised their own hand and placed it on Vare's. Pana smiled, and so did Vare. But I don't care. So I, yeah, I think Shira does these really big moments just super well, um, both in terms of like the emotional development of the characters and like plot stuff. And I think that's why. You know, it's not, like, my favorite show, which I think is unfortunate, but I love seeing clips of, like, these moments in time where they have these, like, amazing, just, like, crazy, insane scale moments, and, like, the music is incredible in them, and the art is amazing. So, yeah, I, you know, I think they they do theirs a lot better, and, like, I, you know, I'm not quite the writer that all their writing staff is but I really just wanted to put a moment like that in here I tried so hopefully it works out a little bit but like Katrin and Adora have some amazing just big scenes yeah I mean it's fair to say they definitely carry the show yeah I mean the rest of the show there's a lot of wonderful things in the rest of the show oh yeah Scorpio yeah but I think the plot if not for Catherine Adora, I think I would have more complaints about just the plot in general and some things that occur. <laughs> but Catherine Adora really just make everything so much more interesting. I'm so invested in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not the sort to necessarily nitpick a plot, but I definitely, not that I would have stopped watching the show, but I definitely wouldn't have been half as invested in the show. Without Catcher and Adora being there. It's just a fact. Yeah, for sure. Well, with that being said, are there any final thoughts you have just about finales and stuff? I guess I'm thinking, I've sort of talked myself in a circle of like, oh, I like it that you didn't make the plot too, you know, open-ended. But then I'm reminding myself, oh, I hate it when plots are too neat. I especially hate the, you know, circumstances that authors like to neatly set up where it's like this person found their love interest this person found their true love this person is going off and you know found their perfect calling and sometimes I think that can be really you know necessary to read and very you know cathartic to have just pure happy ending and it certainly depends on what story you want to tell whatever story you want to tell you know what sort of ending would work best for it but for your particular story, it would have been a little bit more annoying to leave it to, you know, everything is perfectly happy and everything has been 100% resolved, but I definitely like that, you know, the element of mystery is there, but it's not overpowering. Yeah, and I think that's why we chose the theme of finale rather than, like, ending or resolution or something. So it definitely works in other stories especially if a story has been going on for a lot longer, like a, an actual TV series or like a trilogy of books or something, and everything is kind of wrapped up. And that's not where this story is quite yet. So maybe like at some point, everything will be wrapped up if I ever do continue writing. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily need to be like wrapped up in a night 
uh, in a nice like little bow for for it to be a finale. So I guess readers and writers just stay on your toes. Um, also, I guess keep your fingers to the pulse of your story to know, you know, I would say for like a rom-com type movie or story, I definitely do like the neater kind of story ending where you know they've ended up together and things are happy. Not necessarily things are perfect, but they can be closer to perfect in that kind of a story ending versus, you know, genre and can play it and influence, but also, you know, you're, you know your own story better. You know your story best. Yeah, I'm just thinking this isn't necessarily advice, but more of just like a personal preference with finales to like stories like this. I really love spectacle and just like big, as we were talking about with the capture moments, like big events, both in terms of like what's going on with the characters and also just like the, if it's a TV show, like the, the art or the music, how the camera is angled. And in the same way, I really like books that kind of have those feelings to them at the very end. So I'm thinking of like The Last Jedi in Star Wars, where like the end, it's like Luke standing off against like all these walkers and stuff. I think in a lot of ways, like I tried to keep the rest of the story a little bit more subdued and like focused on the character. But like, I, I don't think there's anything wrong in your finale, like trying to make these big moments and making it more of a spectacular type of thing. If it works for your story, it might not. And then like totally just discount this. And again, this isn't advice. This is just the thing that I like. So, yeah. I would say even if it's not, you know, physical, literal spectacle, you know, the finale of the story is meant to be the culmination of the emotional and narrative development of your story. So it, it should be the most gripping part, which I think you achieved in your finale, Peter. So even if it's not, you know, people, you know, shooting fireworks into the air, or, you know, running off to do something. The This should be the part where the reader understands this is the big moment, however you want to portray it, for the characters in this story. Which I suppose is obvious. It's the finale. What else is it going to be? Be anything you want it to be. <laughs> but not boring. Unless you want it to be. I don't know. <laughs> So with all of that said, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode about finales. We also just want to thank you for going on this journey with us and going through the Pana cycle, the first story of like the Pana cycle. It's been really cool writing this book for the podcast and getting to share it with you. So we're definitely going to continue like the podcast is going to continue. We'll do other workshops and things so no worries about that but this you know this story has definitely ended this was the finale of the story so we can't we're not going to go back and like you know talk about it over again so we will have interesting conversations about more stories to come indeed thank you very much for sticking through it with us listeners we really appreciate and if you feel so inclined check out the patreon link in our episode description Absolutely. It really helps. Thank you so much. Uh.
have a great day, evening, whatever time it may be for you. Also, if you have an idea of how to close the episodes in a consistent and fun way, let us know. <laughs> We're workshopping it. Yes. say that it wasn't entirely Greg's fault but it was a little bit his fault